رسولنا وحبيبنا ومنظومنا محمد الحاشمي عليه الصلاة والسلام. Um, before we start, in the year 1933, Muhammad Akbal of Lahore was invited by the King of Afghanistan with the grandson of Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan and Mona Suleiman Nadwi to come establish an Islamic university in Kabul. On this trip, on the environs or the, the outskirts of Kabul, he stopped at the grave of Babur and he wrote this ghazal. And you can find it in his Bayami Mashah. For those who are well versed in Iqbal's Farsi poetry, you'll find it there. The, the whole ghazal is there. This is just a small uh, selection where he says, so Iqbal says that the flag of the Ottomans has arisen once again. But what can I say? What may I say of what has struck the Mughals? Uh, we'll talk about how Taimuriya in Farsi met the Mughals, i.e. the sons of Taimur. Iqbal then says, right, this is Iqbal's words. This is not, this is not an Iranian poet. This is Iqbal al-Lahuri. He says, Oh Babur, how wonderful is it that your dust khakitu armid anja is resting here from armidan. Because the land of Kabul, the land of Afghanistan, is free from the tilsam, the talisman of Europe, right? Because British India went from where? Peshawar in the west to Burma in the east. So all of this was the British Indian Empire, and he reflected, and uh, for Iqbal, it was, it was a very emotional experience, right, to come to the first Mughal emperor's grave. And this really leads us to this next question. Why should we study Islamic history, right? Why not just do, you know, um, a story in Islamic ethics or a story on um, XYZ Islamic personality or talk about, you know, how Islam can be fun for the youth in basketball, et cetera, et cetera, which all, all of those are important. Right. But now for me, as someone who, who has tried to study this tradition and as a Muslim who is, you know, both Indian and Pakistani, I wanted to understand how is it such that 600 million Muslims live from Lahore to Dhaka, right? To about 200 million in Pakistan, 220 million in India and about 180 million in Bangladesh. What led to this? Right. What what truly what, what 600 million Muslims? How many Arabs are there in the world? I think about 500 million. Right? So there means there are more South Asian Muslims than Arabs. So what, what led to this? I wanted to think and ask this question. As Iqbal says, He says the heavens have never, he's talking about Hindustan, i.e., you know, Tarihi Hindustan. That the heavens have never seen such a sight. That when Jibreel السلام, looks at Tahzib Hindustan, Tamadun Hindustan, Right? Uh, he says, what a wonderful civilization that is built here. That the mu'min in India always worshipped Allah and the kafir always carved idols. And so this ethic of Tawheed and Risala, how was it built in South Asia and who brought it here? Right now, thou, now that we can say that the majority of imams, just for example, in America, come from this tarikhi Hindustan. If we did a statistical study, I'm sure that we could come up you know, with a statistic. So we need to ask that question that how did this happen? The second point I wanted to mention is that the great philosopher Tahab Rahman says that our turah or our heritage is to us like a mother. 
And in the same way that the Prophet والسلام, has asked us to do Silatul Rahim, and that Ar-Rahimu Mu'allakun Bil-Arush Kama Waradahu Fil Bukhari, that the Rahim or the maternal relations is hanging by the Arush, and it's lazim and wajib upon us to honor our mother, so too just as our Turat that has given birth to us. Right? As me as an Indian Muslim, or Indian and Pakistani, the, depending on where which gathering I'm at, <laughs> I, I, you know, I have to honor the civilization that produced me. Because didn't know that civilization produce who I am today. So how do I honor that? Because that is my mother, right? And I can't do qat rahim And so this was my approach as I approached my own past, right? And again, this is not to be qawmiyat or asabiyat or jahiliyat, etc. It was just a way to, again, to honor this past, right? To understand that how can Islam manifest in different parts of the world staying true to the risala of the Prophet Because at the end of the day, as Iqbal says, Bring your zat, bring yourself to reach Mustafa. If you don't reach Mustafa, if you don't reach Mustafa, everything else is Abu Lahab. We'll start from there. Um, so before we, this is, this is going to be long and I have to do 300, I have to do, one Mughal king is, is 50 years and I could do 16 hours on just one Mughal king, let alone there's about 45, you know, but we don't have time so we have to rush through. So first we have to talk, the word Mughal, by the way, the Mughals never used for themselves. This was a British Orientalist term that was applied to them. In their literature, they always called themselves the what? Taymuriyah. They were sons of Taymur. Taymur is buried in Samarkand. And we'll talk about him uh, right after the slide. But essentially, Taymur was a Turkic Hanafi, Maturidi Muslim, and a king. We know him in the West as Tamer Lame, in Farsi as Taymur Lang. Right? He was, uh, he was crippled. Uh, he went on a goat raid. Yes, a goat raid. And somebody shot him in his thigh outside the outskirts of Kabul. And he was limp for the rest of his life. But despite that, he conquered this entire empire. And this, in fact, doesn't even do justice to his empire. He actually went all the way to Delhi. Um, in the west, and went all the way to Izmir in the east. The only, the only, the only other person who went from Greece to India was who in history? Alexander. So just they moved in Alexander the Great. Although, although Sayyidina Umar radiAllahu anhu's conquest was much more brilliant and much more uh, uh, challenging than what they moved in Alexander. So don't. When we say these terms, don't forget Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, what he achieved in eight years. You know, Taymur and, Ale and uh, Alexander could not achieve what Sayyidina Umar did in 50 years, right? So Taymur starts off in Central Asia. Remember, this is the post-Mongol world, right? Genghis Khan has devastated cities upon cities upon cities. Um, and if it, if it were not for the Mamluk, the Turkic king in Egypt, Sultan Babers, the whole Muslim world would have been under flames, right? Also, Alauddin Khilji in Hindustan. Anyways, in this sort of uh, post-Mongol world, Taymur is a small chieftain who's able to reunite the tribes. This time as a Muslim, he's a Muslim. Genghis Khan was, was, was a Muslim, right? Taymur is a Muslim, and he's able to unite the tribes, and he expands all the way south to Afghanistan, takes Iran, takes Iraq, takes, takes Azerbaijan, takes Armenia, goes all the way north to Moscow, spends a year. This is the only Muslim to ever take Moscow was Taymur, by the way. He took Moscow for two years. He went all the way up north to Moscow. He came back around to the Caucasus Mountains, where you see uh, on the left, where you see Georgia, Armenia, Dagestan. You guys will know Khabib. That's the, that's the region 
um, you know, and then he came all after he after he came back all the way down and then he took Delhi. Right? And then after he took Delhi, he went back to Samarkand. And then he wrote a letter to the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid. Bayezid called Yildirim. He's defeated seven crusader armies in one battle. Seven crusader armies in one battle. Taymur wrote a letter. So this is the Mughal king's great-grandfather writing a letter, writing a letter to the Ottoman king, the grandfather of Mahmud Fatih, the conqueror of Istanbul. If I'm going too fast, let me know. I just there's there's so much history. There's 10 more slides of this. But in this, uh Taymur writes a letter to Bayezid saying that look, hey. Armenia, uh, Azerbaijan are mine. Do not infiltrate this area. Bayezid says that, listen, you're not the Khalifa of the world. I am. If you, if you try to attack me, I will destroy you. Taymur goes to battle with the Ottoman king Bayezid at the Battle of Ankara in, I believe, 1403 or 1402, right? And Taymur wins. And the Ottomans suffer such a defeat that for 50 years they're, they're, they're struggling to even keep, keep back their empire. Taymor takes the Ottoman king hostage and he dies in captivity. This is the great-grandfather of Mahmud Fatih, the conqueror of Istanbul. And this is a, a big reason why the Ottomans and the Mughals never had a serious relationship. This burned very much between uh, the, uh, the Ottomans and the Mughals because Taymor had essentially almost destroyed the Ottoman Empire, the great-grandfather of the first Mughal. And obviously the Mughals are calling themselves the Taymuriyah, the Ottomans only ever lost to one person, that was Taymur. So obviously you can see why they didn't want to cultivate a relationship. And the Mughals were two, two times or three times as wealthy as the Ottomans were, right? I think two Cambridge statisticians did a study of the Mughal GDP in 1707, and it was about 25% of the world's GDP. For comparison today, America is about 15%, China is about 12%, and China is about, uh, India is about 8%, and China is about 12%. That's why the British came to India, and that's what we'll talk about that later. So the wealthiest India had ever been was under Hanafi Maturidi King. Something to think about, right? Today we today people see Islam and they, they believe you're just gonna be poor. But anyways, they more De destroys the Ottoman king and then he takes Izmir. Izmir had never been conquered by a Muslim before. Now it's 100, nearly 100% Muslim. He takes the city, comes back to Samarkand. Samarkand is his capital. And now it's the pride of the world. Right? How many great ulama were produced from Samarkand? Daftazani, the great Mutakallim, uh, Abu Hafs Umar, uh, Abu Layth, etc. Et Mullah Jami came and studied there. Imam Bukhari right, is buried outside of the environs of, of, of Samarkand, etc., etc. Um, and he makes it the capital. Temur also had this thing where if he saw a good architect, he would just take him. That's also happened in India. A lot of Hindus he took uh, when, when he pillaged India and then he brought him back to, to Samarkand. Anyways, Temur comes back to Samarkand and he's like, you know what? I've only battled Muslims my whole life. Let me go do Ghazwa against Russia. Because, uh, sorry, not against Russia, against China. Because remember, the only way to access China is either through the ocean or you go through Bangladesh, Burma, Vietnam into China, that's pretty much impossible. Or you go through the north, which is what Genghis Khan did because it's an overland pass. So Timur was the only person who could do that because he was, his capital was here. And so he, you can go around like this. And as he left on the Ghazwa, he died. And then he was the only person, the only Muslim who could have, you know, uh, taken it. But, uh, you know, Mafat, Fat. Right, so that's essentially Taymur, right? So this is his empire. 
Um, he dies in about 1407, and, and any Changezi, Changezi is the Urdu or Farsi word for Genghis Khan. Um, it's split up between his sons, his son Sharukh. This is the first Sharukh in history. Um, no, no relation to the modern Sharukh. This Sharukh is able to unite the Taimuri Empire, right? But after he dies, it basically splits the, the, the Ottomans take back their original territory. The Mamluks take back their original territory. Another principality comes in Iran. By the way, Iran is still about 95% Sunni, right? The Shah Ismail has not come yet. So this whole world, most, most the Ummah is about 98, 97-98% Sunni. This is before Shah Ismail, right? Only about 2-3%. That's why you don't see much writings, because it's a 2-3% thing, right? It's only until Iran, uh, when Shah Ismail comes into the scene, and then he'll forcibly convert Sunnis where he would take Hanafi Muftis on members and then push them off unless they curse Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Umar That happened in 1520s. Anyways, um, Babur, uh, so Babur is a direct descendant of Taymur. So ba uh, Taymur's eldest son was Miran Shah, whose eldest son was Muhammad Mirza, whose eldest son was Sultan Abu Sa'id Mirza, whose eldest son was Umar Sheikh Mirza, whose eldest son was Babur. So direct paternal ancestry line. Right from Babur to Taimur, and remember this was this was a Badshahi. What does Badshahi mean? Is that the political authority is, يعني يرثو من أحد من أحد إلى أحد إلى أحد إلى ما وراء ذلك. Right. So the political the political authority is basically inherited based off each generation. Right. So this is this is the ancestry. Right. So that's Taimur, and then Babur is all the way here. Okay, so all of, and, and, and by the way, every political, every, every political descendant has uh, essentially some claim to the throne. That's why the Mughal kings, they would say, Takht ya tabut. Tabut is the coffin. Either you get the throne or you die on the way there. Takht ya That's what Aurangzeb said when he was fighting his Bahiyam Kisat Darai Fuiti. Anyways, okay. Babur, this is Maura on Nahar. It's Central Asia. When the Umayyads, namely under Walid ibn Abdul Malik, when, he's, when he conquers Central Asia, there's three terms. There's Khurasan, Khawarizm, and Mawra al-Nahar. Mawra al-Nahar today encompasses the regions of Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. Right? It's important, especially for South Asians, for us to know this. I mean, even the word Urdu itself, is a word that comes from Mawra al-Nahar, right? It's not a Farsi word, it's a, it's a Turkic word. Or even the word like Baji, Chacha, Samosa, right? All of these are all of these are Mongolian Turkic words that came into Urdu because of the Mughals, right? There's 30, 35 words of these that I can name, but you know, people don't care unless it's Farsi or Urdu, right? Um, so Babar is born in Andajan, okay? This is the Fargana Valley for those who have studied Alm. They know Burhanuddin Marghinani, Sahiba Hidayah, Musannifa Hidayah, the great Hanafi legal compendium. He was born in this valley. He was born in Marghinan. But the whole valley, the whole wadi, is called Marghinan. This is Tajikistan, this is, Kyrg uh, this is Kyrgyzstan, and this is China. Right? And so his father is born right there in Andajan. And uh, his father is, again, a prince of the Taimuri Empire. And his father dies when he's 13. He was in a Kabuta Khana. What is a Kabuta Khana? It's, a, it's, a, it's basically you keep a house for your birds, right? Mashallah, they were such tahzibi people, even houses are only for human beings, but, but you know, who says that Muslims aren't 
pro-animal rights, you know, a whole house for the birds. He, the Azan for Asr went off and he basically tripped on this Kabutar Khana and he fell down and the whole tower fell down and he died. This is interesting because his son Humayun will also hear the Azan of Asr in Delhi and he'll trip on his robe and also die. So Dada and, and Pota don't know, you know, mashallah, the Mubarak Wakt of Azan will both pass away tripping on something. But so Babur becomes king at the age of 13, month of Ramadan. That's how he's, by the way, all of this is mentioned in his own autobiography. It's called the incidents or the memoirs of Babur. And he himself wrote it. And it's the first, the first autobiography after Ibn Khaldun and Imam Ghazali before him. And so you have to also think about this in a different genre, not just in political history, political theology, but also in writing the self or writing um, your own past, right? And this is phenomenal. We don't have anything like this in Islamic history where a prince or a king wrote himself across 500 pages. It was first translated in, into English in 1905 by an East India trading company servant by the name of Anna Beveridge. Um, highly problematic because she didn't know what the Hanafi madhab is. The whole, Babur's whole memoir, you can understand it as an, a writing of Hanafi morals in the world. You know, Bichari, she didn't understand anything, any Hanafi references. She just kept writing religious. Every time she saw the word Hanafi, she would just write the word religious. But um, anyways, by the age of, uh, Babur becomes king at the age of 14, right? His mamu, his mother's brother, also Babur on his mother's side was a direct descendant of Genghis Khan, 15th descendant. So now Babur from both sides united, both the Chengizi lineage and the Temuri lineage. This is really important because now he has legitimacy from both sides, right? So after, ba so Babur becomes king at the age of 14, his mamu and his chacha both invade Andajan, right? And he he's able to sort of carry, uh, curry up support and defend the, the city of Andajan. And in that same time period, he's able to take Samarkand and Samarkand. Samarkand is still the capital of the Muslim world, right? There is no capital that is more intellectually flourishing um, than Samarkand in this era. Iqbal has long ghazal on Samarkand. Again, I wish, just, I could do, if we could just do a lecture on Iqbal's relationship to Samarkand and Babur, that itself would take an hour. But coming back to, to Babur, he's able to take Samarkand for the first time. Within eight months, his hometown of Andajan, so Samarkand is all the way in the bottom left under the Zarafshan River. Today you can go there. Unfortunately, the Soviets dry, uh, have, have dried it out. It's it's actually I, I was just in Uzbekistan last year to go see all of these cities. It's it's, it's such a tragedy to, to, to see what what the Soviets have done in just two hundred years. So um, you know, uh, Babur is able to take Samarkand, but while he's ruling, he's only fifteen, by the way. After he takes Samarkand, he's kicked out. Because one, uh, another retainer of, of the Chengizis named Shaybani Khan is able to, to sort of put pressure on Andajan. So Babur has to flee Samarkand, right, and defend himself, and he loses both Samarkand and Andajan. Don't want to spend too much time here, but basically he is able to take Samarkand again. He loses it, and then he flees to Kabul in the south, because now he's basically lost all bases. By the way, most of the people ruling all of these areas were his mamus and his chachas, most of, uh, most of these cities. And it was a very cutthroat world where everyone had legitimacy and everyone had shifting ambitions and political loyalty. And Babur is sort of unique, and you can read this in his memoir, 
that he's sort of ashamed by how this world is working. What's also interesting is that he's using Hanafi methodology to critique the Changhezi custom of the Tore. This is not the Torah, this is the Tore where he says that, listen, and maybe you can sort of understand this in the, in the way that people take up secularism, but in the world that Babur grew up in, the Changhezi Qanun and Dastur had such predominance in that world where people did not question it. And Babur writes a very interesting passage where he talks about how the Jangazi Tawri is not a Nasi Qat'i, and he uses these words, right, which is very interesting. Nasi Qat'i and Hanafi methodology means, uh, you know, a hardcore proof like the Quran and the Sunnah. Um, but this is sort of to think about a prince who's a Hanafi, who's a Maturidi, right, who is a Farsi poet, a Turkish poet, and, you know, a Fatih, and a Ghazi, etc., etc. Anyways, he, he gets kicked out of Samarkand, right? And so this is a nine, ten year, and he talks about how he's wandering between all of these cities. You know, he's in exile. He's, he's being betrayed by this mamu, by this chacha, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then he flees into, sorry. Um, and then he flees into Kabul. This is, by the way, a description. So, because remember, the way that Muslims told history back then was based on what tabaqat works. Do you guys know what tabaqat works? These are genre literature books based on like Muhammad ibn Sa'ab. He has his tabaqat al-kubra or suyuti, et cetera. So th these are the books that they could read. So half of his memoir is just based like a tabaqat work. So he just talks about the different members of his family. And he mentions basically four traits. Were they namazi? Did they know, did they know Mulana Rumi at all? And what was their adab and akhlaq? Which is very fascinating, right? So he's able to sort of characterize people based on how much they pray namaz, how much did they wear amamas, how did they dress, how literate they were in their language, Farsi, Turkish, and Arabic. These are the three languages that Babur cared about um, and that any Muslim would have cared about in that era. And what was their akhlaq with other people and how did they treat other people, right? And this is, this is you know, imagine, right? Because many Muslims see history, they see, they see the seerah, they see the Khulafa'i al-Rashida, and then they see Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, and then they see Salah al-Din Ayyubi, and then they see Muhammad al Jinnah, right? And then this is, this is 1400 years of Islamic history, right? Is this, is this it? Just six people that we look up to, right? Or, or is there something more to take, right? Think about this, right? Think about how is it such, by the way, Babur also writes a volume in Hanafi fiqh in, in Turkish poetry called Al-Mubayyin. It's there in Andajan. There's a museum of Babur that you, know, you can go and visit, open from 9 to 12 a.m. for anyone who wants to visit. But anyways, I mean, his father was someone who could recite the Masnavi. Right? That's, that's, that's something. I mean, who, where today can we find that? These are not Iranians, by the way. These are Turks in, in Uzbekistan. So think about that. Think about that education, right? To, to, to you know, that not neglecting the five prayers. I mean, just imagine that a king talking about his father in that way. I mean, this is, bad, uh, you know, what does, uh, Babur has this famous Farsi couplet mentioned in the Akbar Nama, where he says, He says that don't say that kingship and Sufism are, are dur, are separate from each other. He says, I'm a king, but I'm a slave to the Sufis. Right, and this idea is that the Iqbal mentions is that the excellence of Muslim political theory is that they were able to they were able to unite Miri and Darveshi, kingship and Sufism, and once you can combine the two, that's where you'll see Sayyidina Umar anhu, the king of Iran and Palestine, sleeping inside, uh, sleeping you know on the ground, on, on, you know under under a nakhal or or a date palm tree, right, and this is. 
this is really interesting, right? Because how do you, how, how is it such that you can create a culture where even people at the most dunyawi level, right? What is the most dunyawi level? The political level, right? Where people are praying all of their namazes and memorizing hundreds of verses of Islamic ethical poetry, right? And conquering the world. You know, only, truly only the sunnah of the Prophet can inspire a civilization like this, right? It's something, something to think about. And this is, you know, when you read about this and then you read the shikwa of Iqbal, then you, then you start to understand what is Iqbal read. By the way, Iqbal read everything, right? All of this is just 1% of Iqbal's knowledge, right? And even just to understand a figure like Iqbal, you have to read all of this history because he was, he was a, he was a mu'arikh too. He was a, he was a wakil, he was a, he was a, he was a feylasuf, he was a siyasadan, and he was a mu'arikh. Don't, don't forget, um, you know, don't, that, that first poem that, uh, Iqbal wrote about Babur, right? Who, who was reading about, anyway, the next, next slide, yeah. So anyways, this is, you know, a miniature of, of, of Babur outside the valleys of Samarkand. And, uh, he, you know, was able to take it thrice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as I said, in 1502, he flees south to Kabul. He also seeks the aid of Shah Ismail. He only does that because he reached out to the Ottoman king, Sultan Salim Yavuz, who had just conquered Damascus. And now Sultan, and Damascus was always incredibly, remarkably wealthy and always full of scholars. And Sultan Salim said, you know, I'll give you some muskets, but I can't really help you. So Babur, out of necessity, seeks help from Shah Ismail Safawi. Right and Shaisme, and then Babur is able to retake Samarkand for the third time. Next slide. We'll move a little bit faster. This is a miniature of, of him taking a, a fort um, in Central Asia. As you can see, people have this thing that you know military technology was only bought, brought by the British. Babur had phenomenal cannons, right, and and phenomenal muskets and phenomenal military technology, as we'll discuss when he conquers India, right. And the way that he conquers India is brilliant. Um, how much? How much time are we at? Okay. Okay. Um, you know, and uh, he 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 is able to uh, astonishingly, right? Absolutely, uh, astonishingly, uh, astonishingly able to 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 take these well-guarded forts with small small uh, battalions, right? But he's very intelligent, and and we'll talk about his military strategy a little bit later because that's important, because you know. Somebody can just read Sufi books day in and day in and day out, but if you're not an expert, you know, on the Maidan, then kya kama So next slide. These are these are his actual coins that were printed in Kabul. So on the back you have the Kalima La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah, and then you can see Muhammad Zahiruddin Babur Badshah. On the right, so these are the actual coins printed in Kabul in 1505. Next slide. Um, this is something that I wanted to highlight perhaps really briefly. This is, you know, he, he, he is very astute um, in terms of his environment. Uh, he's, he's noticing of his world, right? That again, that, that as a Muslim, right, you need to be a holistic human being, right? To observe every single element of the world around you, right? So he would, you know, his descriptions of gardens, of rivers, right? Of different kinds of animals, of pheasants, of fowls, etc., pomegranates, right? One of the first things when he comes to India he says, why are these watermelons so big, right? Because because all of the fruit in India was a, was was usually a lot bigger than the fruit that he encountered um, in Uzbekistan and, and Afghanistan, right? Just because of the climate of India. Um, and obviously mangoes, 
he was so he was so shocked by how the, the taste of a mango and two three pages just on just on one mango he, he talks about um, in his Bhavarnama, right? And uh, again, for me, it's like you're probably thinking, why is this you know kid just talking about some dead Mughal king? But hopefully, you know, as Allah says in the Quran, that truly in the stories of the people who have passed. There is an ethical lesson, but if you have a heart, anyways, so he, he, he talks about, you know, the tulips, the roses, again, he's also a poet, right? What does it mean to be a poet, you know, a faqih, a fatih, a ghazi, right, a katib, a musannif, all of these things in one person, and I have to ask ourselves, can we even think about one person? Right in the past 200 years, who had all of these qualities, right? If we see one political leader today who goes to one Juma, like you know. But again, this is this is again not to berate anyone in particular, but to think about what is possible, right? What is in the realm of human, you know? This is not someone who was born and raised in Hijaz under the Tabi'in. This is in 15. This is in the 16th century, right? This is what uh, 900 years after the Prophet Right, the, think about that. And his knots on the Prophet, you know, Hamza Mahbub is not here, but you know, just last week, you know, his knots on the Prophet in, in, in Turkey are so beautiful, right? And that's again, as I said, this is the most important thing is the is the is the Dina Mustafa. Whoever whoever raised the flag of Dina Mustafa, the, we salute them. Whoever didn't, we, we keep our mouth shut. But anyways, next next slide. Um, this again is just his basic military strategy, and I, what, I, what I wanted to highlight, right? So he has left wing, his right wing, and his center. So what what he would do is, to, and then he had his vanguard at the top. The the you know these are all Turkey turf, okay? So at the top, so he would he would sort of push it uh, against the front, and then the other army. Well, then he learned this is the Cengizi strategy that was sort of passed down like biryani recipes, but they would they they would they would attack the vanguard. And then, as uh, and then he would bring the he would bring the left wing a little bit closer to the vanguard, so they think that 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 that, uh, that, that he was reinforcing from the rear. But then he would encircle them with the baran ghar or the right wing, and then he would immediately encircle them. And then at that point, they were able to take up the majority of the army. And then he won many battles with the, with this strategy. And obviously, it looks very simple. Us sitting in a comfy masjid in Glendale Heights, but imagine you're in the summer heats of India in, in Panipat. And, and, and you have to fight 100,000, you know, Indians on their elephants. Then, but, you know, and this is just basically, and there's a lot more to say about this, but we don't have time. I, I, this is something that, you know, I wanted to just sort of highlight. This is Ian Forrestor, who is a, who is a British fiction writer. When he read the Babranama, um, he had this reflection, um, but, uh, you know, I, you know, you guys, you guys can read it, but maybe if we have this, this Barber series should have been at least a six part, a six part series, but you know, we don't really have time to, but, but just imagine, right? Think about, you know, um, how, how brilliant of a, of a political theorist he was to, to, to garner such attraction in a world that despised Muslims. But just, uh, just put, press B. <laughs> Yeah. So really quick, or actually, you can just you can just turn it turn it back on. Yeah, that's okay. So, but 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 I want what I wanted to highlight, and I didn't get to um, 
sort of finish talking about in terms of the conquest. Just really briefly, he, in, in 1507 to 1519, he's able to take Hirat, and then Kandahar, and then Kabul. And then once you're in Kabul, what is Kabul known as in Islamic Ghazi history as the passageway to India, the passageway to Rahe Hindustan, right? Because Kabul is here, Peshawar, how do you get to Peshawar from the Khyber Pass, right? You go to the Khyber Pass into Peshawar, and then you go, you ride to Multan, and then you ride to Lahore, and then you ride to Amritsar, and then you ride to Sidhin, then to Ambala, and then to Delhi, right? And this is the, the route of most of these from Taymur to Ahmad Shah Durrani to Babur, to Mahmoud Ghaznavi, etc. It's pretty much the, the same route. <clears throat> this is this is what I talked about earlier. But anyways, he he is able, he, he starts to hear reports while he is in Kabul about Hindustan. And Hindustan at this time is ruled by Ibrahim Lodi. He was a Pashtun king, right? So this is not an Indian Muslim king. This is a Pashtun Afghan king. And Afghans had started to settle two, three hundred years from Mahmoud Ghaznavi's era. Um, and he hears that Ibrahim Lodi is there, but he's not necessarily a well, um, a well-functioning ruler. And also remember that Taymur had conquered India, right? And Delhi had promised Taymur, who is Babur's great-great-grandfather, that Delhi would be subservient to the Taymuri crown. So Babur writes a letter to Taymur, uh, sorry, to Ibrahim Lodi, and says that, listen, the Takht of Delhi is, 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 should be owed to the Taymuri line, right? And if, if you guys are not going to surrender, then we will come, right? And one of the major, uh, one of the facilitating ways by which he's able to achieve this is that the governor of Lahore, Dawlat Khan, writes a letter to Babur saying that, listen, you can come and I will defect to your side. So Babur first does four or five expeditions um, into Punjab from Afghanistan. And obviously Afghanistan is just Khurasan at that time. It's not Afghanistan as we know it today, but it's pretty much Khurasan in that area. It's pretty much the same region. And he's able to uh, basically come into uh, Punjab four or five times and familiarize himself, right? He doesn't just come, you know, he doesn't come in the first time and say, we're going to ride to Delhi. He comes four or five times, understands the area, um, uh, you know, Lahore, Multan, Peshawar, Atak, etc. All of these areas that are in uh, the northwestern frontier and, and, and uh, western Punjab. And by the sixth time, he's like, listen, we're ready, right? And we're obviously glossing over a lot of detail. And then he is able to, and then he marches to Panipat. Panipat today is about a 60 mile march from Delhi, right? And there's three battles of Panipat. Uh, the third one will have, the, the second one is with Akbar, his grandson, and then with Ahmad Shah Durrani in 1757, 200, 200 years later. And then, anyway, he's, he's able to win. He has about 10,000 soldiers from, from, from Uzbekistan. And he's facing an army of about 100,000 from Ibrahim Khan Lodi's army, which the top are Afghan Pashtuns, and the rest are, are Indian Hindus, right? And also remember, Ibrahim Khan Lodi's army has what? Elephants. Babur obviously does not have elephants. It's coming from Afghanistan. They don't have elephants. But what Babur is able to achieve in this, in this battle is a unique military strategy in which Sultan Salim Yavuz, the Ottoman king, finally sends a military attachment to Babur, right? And in this military attachment, there's someone called Mustafa Rumi. And Mustafa Rumi basically instructs him in a new sort of innovative military strategy where you have camel musketeers that are uh, uh, shielded by these wagon carts that are connected to each other that also hold musketeers. 
So what that means is that these camel musketeers can keep on shooting without worrying about cannonballs or other other uh, uh, artillery from the other side, right? Um, anyways, Babur is able to win this battle and he takes Delhi, right? And then he's able to take Agra. Anyways, the, 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 the Rajputs rise up. He's able to defeat the Rajputs. And then he succeeds, right? And what's, what's really phenomenal, right, again, is that in just a four-year span, he's able to take all of northern India all the way up to modern-day Bengal and much of central India to about Malwa and Mewar. And then in about four years, he dies. But what's fascinating, again, is that his empire will live until 1857, when Queen Victoria will come onto the throne or take the throne of India, we know the Victorian age, when um, the British soldiers will take the last two sons of Bahadur Shah Zafar Sani, post them on the wall of the Lal Qila in Delhi, and shoot them dead, 16 years old, to end the line of Babur. So that means for 230 years, right, his empire will rule, of which most South Asian Muslims are the result of that. Because according to Irfan Habib, who is a historian of Aligarh, Muslims before the Mughals were about 5% of South Asia. By partition in 1947, what is the percentage of Muslims in India? Does anybody know? This is Tariq Hindustan, so from Peshawar to Dhaka. About 37%. So th think about that. 5% to 37% in the Babri line. So what happens? Right? But also remember, Babur se pehle, char saal musalmanu ne hukumat or rajdari ki. So how come in 400 years they only, all these kings, Alauddin Khilji, Muhammad ibn Tughlaq, right? Ultimate. Uh, etc., etc., all of Mahmoud Ghaznavi, uh, Muhammad Ghori, right? All of these kings, how come they only achieved 5%? But yeah, by in just 250 years of the Mughals, 40 or close to four. I mean, now today, if you calculate Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh, Muslims are about 40% of the entire South Asia. We've only Muslims will only increase in any given population. That's we will our, our representation will we have never decreased except for. We're, when we're genocided, like in like in Spain, right? And um, in this scenario, we have to ask that that what? How is Islam? And remember, in India, you have the Brahmins. The Brahmins are a five thousand year old civilization. You're not going to come in and be like, "Oh, you're a kafir, you're a mushrik, come into Islam." That's not going to happen. You have to intellectually convince them of the worth of Islam. And, and this is this is what happened, right? Akbar, Akbar had these massive translation projects where he would translate Arabic books into Sanskrit and Sanskrit books into Persian, which is, which is phenomenal. And obviously, we, you know, the deen ilahi we can talk about in a, in, a, in a different session. It's important that you don't have this very set, uh, set of understanding of, of what this means. We have to, you know, you, you, you can't just let movies dictate your understanding of Mughal history. You have to have, you know, a deep, to even study Mughal history, you have to know Arabic, Persian, Turki, and Urdu, just to even begin to gloss. Babur doesn't know Urdu. When, when is the first Urdu book written? Does anybody know? What year? What century? Let me define. What century? Anyone? We're all Urdu done. Nobody can say the first Urdu book was written? 18th century. Phenomenal. MashaAllah. May, may the Charaghi Urdu remain in your family. But in seven, not even the early eight, late 18th century. Urdu, by the way, is the fifth most spoken language in the world. So that means in 200 years, Urdu became the what is it, fourth or fifth, one of the two. It's about 
500 million speakers in the world, I think, between India, Pakistan, and the diaspora, right? So think about that, right? How then does a dynasty create a new language of which 500 million people speak? And think about, as you know, Mufti Amin Khulwadiya says, that what was a civilization that produced something like a Taj Mahal? And this is something that Babur, just a couple of reflections of Babur before we end, I think we should, and then we can take a, a couple of questions, um, is that one of the first things that Babur noticed when he came to India was that nobody interacted with each other. Why, why do you guys think that is? Because of the? Because, no, no, he said the Indians themselves do not interact with each other. Because of the caste system. The Brahmins, the Dalits, the Shastriyas, etc. Nobody's interacting. Any Muslim, everyone was interacting with each other. If I, you know, and if you, Damascus to Samarkand, to, to, to Cairo, to Qurtuba, to Andalus, that was one singular thing about Islam, was that everybody, you had access to everyone, right? The Amir had to come to Jum'ah, and the Faqir had to come to Jum'ah. Everyone had to come to Jum'ah, right? And that, and that distinction was, I mean, for us, when we live in America, it's not that novel to us, but you think about what the Prophet, brought, you know, in the Amezash uh, of the people, right? And, and, you know, if you, you have to think about this, just on, on a sociological level, Right? And Muslims don't think sociologically anymore, unfortunately. Right? Is that is that he notices this? But that's all that, that changes, right? Think about the uncles here who know the Tahzeeb of Lucknow and Dili. They, you know, they you know, there's a phenomenal book called Qadim Lucknow Ki Akhiri Bahar by Sayyid Muhammad Ali Jafar, written in 1880. Please, for those people who are Urdu done, read that book. Read that book and understand what the Taimuri Tahzeeb gave to Hindustan. For those people who also, and again, I, you know, I'm, I'm third generation Muslim American. My grandparents came from Hyderabad in 1968 to Chicago. So I'm, I'm so far removed from this tahzib and tamadun. But for those people who have a, 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 a lam'a or, or a lamha or a glimpse into this culture, that the, the, the old Indian Muslim tahzib understand where it comes from and how shari ethics that is based you know, truly, when you when you when you read, because the, the the average Muslim who was who came from an educated family would have been so familiar with Ihya ulum al-Din. It's so I, I cannot tell you how everyday sentences of Ihya ulum al-Din of Imam Ghazali and Imam Fakhdin al-Razi's muhassal min alim al-usul was everyday stuff in the Mughal world. The daughter of Aurangzeb, Zeb al Nisa, had Imam Fakhdin al-Razi's Tafsir al-Kabir translated into Farsi that was easily accessible. There are hundreds of those manuscripts available in India, right? I mean, that, that's just Arabic, just the, the, the There are more Farsi books written just in the city of Delhi across 800 years than the entirety of Iran, Afghanistan, and Tajikistan. Just imagine that. This is according to Sunil Sharma, who is a professor at Boston University. Think about that, let alone Arabic books. I can, I can guarantee you that there are more Arabic books written in Delhi than than Damascus, Cairo, and Baghdad in that same 500-year period. So now, how are, how are you producing ulama who are writing in three, four different languages at such a high volume, right? And again, and you can also link this again to what to what Babur's dynasty is able to, to build and construct in South Asia, right? And so when when and and also ask yourself this question: that why is it such that only Muslim India produced Iqbal? right? I mean, truly, right? Why did not Syria or Egypt in that same time period produce someone like Iqbal, right? And so, and so think about this. This is, you know, a lot to reflect on. Um, I don't know if anybody has any questions.
But these are just some final points that, that motivates me as I seek to understand this past. You know, um, if I can really quickly, actually. Um, I wanted to... Uh... So this is, a, this is the, the, the legal system of the Mughals. You have the Sultan, the Qazi al-Quzat, the Sadr mufti the Ottomans had the Sheikh al-Islam, we had the Sadr mufti the Wazir, the Divani Am, Divani Khas, Divani Insha, Divani Ariz, etc., etc. But I wanted to just to show you, um, uh, these are from Aurangzeb's letters. I wanted to show you a farman. So this is um, Aurangzeb's farman, his own Sarnavishta farman that he wrote for a Qadi in Afghanistan. Half of this is in Arabic and half of this is in Farsi. Just at least the first line. Can anybody read that for me? It's one of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's asal husna. Okay, I'll give you the first word. It's huwa. Anybody? This is nasta'liq, but in Arabic. It's huwa al-ghani. Because in, in Iranian, Indian, nasta'liq, because you had a reed pen, a nay, uh, a nay qalam, you didn't, you didn't lift up your pen when you wrote, so you had to connect. So in Arabic, you don't, you don't connect the wow, the ra, the alif. But in divan nasta'alif, you just keep writing because you can't lift up your pen. Right? And, and that's a seal. And under that is Farmane Sultane Muhammad Babur Ghazi. He wrote this after his conquest of India. Um, the transcription of this, uh, me and my professor did it, um, it's right there. Darin Vakh, Daftar Farmane Jahan Muta'a. Jahan is like Alam Muta'a, and he obeyed in the world. Wajibul Ittiba'a, Sharaf Nafazyat, Kichu Mawzi, Panjal Gaul Kundari. This is a village in India. As Harganay Tala Kijam Ay Rakmi, on Mablaghe, Panj Hazar Tanka Siyahas, Barrasme Suyagul, this is Mongolian word. Ta'aluk, Bakazi, Jalal Qazi, Harguna Mazkuras. Me, Dash, Talinas, Hamad, etc., etc. And then you can see at the end, Darimbab, Taksir, Numayan, Tahriran, Tishari, Dil Qadr, Haram, Sana, 933. Right? So think, think about this, right? So this is, this is, this is, you know, just one small glimpse into, the, into this world. Because in order to rule an empire, what is he using? Hanafi fiqh, right? So that means that you have to rule this, especially during Aurangzeb Alamgir's time. You have an empire that's from Kandahar to Burma and then to Madras and 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 uh, and uh, and uh, Bangalore in the south. And every Parigana, there's a Hanafi Qadi. Sometimes there was no Sunni available, so there was a Shia, but he could only give a Qada on the Hanafi Madhab. And so, what? And imagine in Hindustan, there is no partition level violence under the Mughals. The level of violence that happened in 1947. That's the first time that has ever happened in the history of India. So we have to ask, how is it such that Muslims can rule such a large continent without erupting into violence through the madhab of Abu Hanifa? Think about that. And there are thousands of documents like these. They can up, everybody just wants to read and write in English. Nobody wants to understand what our tarikh and I mean, even, even just a quick brief into uh, into uh, you know Aurangzeb's letters, these were there are hundreds that he wrote to his sons. Um, 
Salam Shuma Halati Asban so etc. etc. And then he'll quote a, a Farsi couplet from Sa'di Shirazi Misra, but accent a hand on etc. etc. Ali Hazrat, by the way, is who? Ali Hazrat is, is not Ahmad Raza Khan or the Nizam of Hyderabad. It's the Prophet, That's the true Ali Hazrat. You know, but now we use it for everyday people. But I mean, imagine where we think of a world where a king can write letters like these, right? Can have the best insha or composition in this world. Um, this was printed in Hyderabad. Shout out to Hyderabad. But, uh, you know, um, again, something... Um, Something to think about is, is, is how do you, and this is a presentation I did on Shah Waliullah at the Ulama conference in the Bay Area, but I want to talk about how the Mughals were important for Shah Waliullah. Um, we definitely don't have time for that, but uh, I, don't, I don't know if there's something more of, of, relevant, uh, of relevance here. But uh, no, I mean, I think, I think we can, I don't know. And yeah, okay. I don't know. Maybe maybe you guys can I don't know end on this very tragic line as uh, what does uh, what does Iqbal say? That Muslims are so ashamed of losing their crown. That do you know after eight hundred years of Muslim rule, what do we have left? Just one blanket made from silk to prove that Muslims once or kings, but yeah, JazakAllah Khair. I don't know if anybody has any questions, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, JazakAllah uh, Khair. What do we take from Muslim war tactics uh, back in the Mughal times when war has changed so much now that uh, I guess how does it apply? What can we learn from it? Yeah, I mean, I think that like what Muslims have always done you know, even from the Prophet is that these are dunyawi things, right? And, you know, you can learn dunyawi things from anyone. So, you know, if if someone else has, has just objectively like better military tactics, it's okay to adopt that. You know, when Sultan Muhammad Fatih conquered Istanbul, the cannons that he used was from, you know, a Christian defector named Urban. You know, it, it's, it's not like he can, I think we had that conversation in one class, but, uh, you know, he, it's not like he had native Ottoman Muslim-built cannons. He literally took them and, you know, weaponized them for his own purposes. But I think that, like, that, that, that sort of uh, is a driving factor that, that Muslims need to be aware of the world that they live in, you know. And definitely one of the reasons that we can say is that Muslims, when the British come into India or even in Egypt, is that they're, they are simply unaware of the, of the, of the vast... Uh, progression of European military tactics and it seems like the only two people who really understood Western military tactics and were able to weaponize them were just Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi and Tipu Sultan and Mysore the only the, I feel like the only two Muslims in in, 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 that, in the 19th century were able to actually really really put the Europeans on their tails may Allah have mercy on both of them uh, they were both Qadris by the way from Abdul Qadir al-Jilari Something, something there, um, but yeah, I, I understand it's a lot of information, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's. I think it's high time for Muslims to not just make sweeping generalizations about our past, but have a much more critical and in-depth attitude to each and every leader, and understand, you know, each, uh, every civilization, you know, in which 
the, the, the ethics of the prophet was manifested for you know, five, six, seven hundred years, you know, and that's, uh, it will help us at least better understand that we are not new in this regard. That when Babur comes into India, that, you know, Muslims are a fraction of what they are, right? And yet they're able to build. When people go to India, nobody's going to go see, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a Hindu temple. What do they go to see? A Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal, by the way, is a Hanafi waqf endowed land. We still have the waqf document written in Nista'li Farsi. It was by the madhab of Abu Hanifa. It's written on there. You know, if you read Fatawa Hindi and you go to the end of Kitab al-Waqf section in Fatawa Alamgiri, it's copy and paste, copy and paste, you know, and you can think about how fiqh can, can, can help organize a world where Muslims are only a fraction. And, you know, why, 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 why can't we do that again? You know, but again, it, it, it becomes necessary that you understand the world that you live in. You know, So unless you have that tabiyin, you know, it, it becomes very, very challenging to, to, to build on top of that. But, yeah. Go ahead. So someone like to start studying Islamic history in your personal time. Would you recommend any courses or books, or how would you... Will be a starting position. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so th this is people are asking this question. Um, I don't. I I'm definitely not a fan of, of approaching, especially a topic like Islamic history, because there's so much to read unless you don't have someone. And really, masjids and madrasas need to do a much better job of approaching their past. It should be hiring, you know, people and to do more stuff because I do, I don't know. I honestly don't know what to su suggest to you because I don't know of any madrasas or or, or masjids. I mean. Obviously, at Darul Qasim, we do, uh, for us, Al-Khatib does do some Islamic history, but I don't know if that's open to part-time students. Um, but, you know, that's something definitely to look into. To my knowledge, that's, I mean, for us, Al-Khatib is, is doing a PhD in Islamic history, so he is someone that you do need to learn from, because anybody can go on Wikipedia and just, like, pull up some data. But, like, you need to have a methodology, right? You need to understand what is haq and what is batin, right? Just like when when you when you when you read tabaqat uh, uh, works you read hadith you know you can't just open a book and, and read through it you need to have you know expertise and uh, and a, a, a proper approach so um, but I mean like you know a good starting book is lost Islamic history by Firas al-Khatib and for the Mughals um, there's a book by Anne Mary Shimo she was the professor of Indian Islamic history at Harvard for 20 years called the great Mughals the book should be on Amazon it's a fantastic book uh, she starts off, I don't know if you guys know the book Kafiyah, it's a Nahu book, super advanced Nahu book. She starts it off with Shah Jahan, who is the builder of Taj Mahal, his personal copy of Kafiyah. Think about a world, you know, we hear about Shah Jahan, fell in love, fell in love, before he fell in love with Mumtaz Mahal, you know, he was in love with Nahu. So think, think I mean, to do, I don't know, like in Azadville, we did, we did parts of Kafiyah with private study. I mean, that, that is a very challenging book. Like it, phenomenally challenging. They are very. The only ulama I know, I know personally who have done kafia are uh, Sheikh Amin. Uh, who, who, who's that one Ustad from Sibila Rashad in Devon? Forget his name. He is number two. Uh, number three is, I believe, Mona Bilal Ansari. And then uh, Dr. Muhammad. Those are the only four people in Chicago that I know who have done as Muslim Modesta in Fremont, California. Those are the only five people I know in America who have done kafia. The fact that the, the builder of the Taj Mahal has done kafia. Is just is just striking, where you build a hadara arabia islamia wherever you go. That is, you build the city of Medina wherever you go. And now imagine if every board, if every board member, every president of the masjid had had knowledge of Arabic and Nahu. 
what a, what a, what a different civilization now that we have and what a different set of decisions where now you understand the priorities of Islam, right? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let me get through. I think there's another question. Yeah. For my question is a little bit generalized. Go ahead, go ahead. When Babur came and the Mughal empires came, yeah. their chieftains and others are Hindus, their local Rajas also. But we know not all of them. Some some some, them. some yeah, are. Some yeah. But we noticed that the main language, either Persian or most likely mostly Persian, probably a part is Arabic. Yeah. How does Islam spread so much in that environment? Even though the Quran or the Hadith were not translated in local languages, we see that it's translated in Urdu. But until recently, 1980s and 1980s, you know, when the Hadith yeah. or the Quran was yeah. translated in like uh, Tamil language, Bengali uh, language, yeah, before yeah, that yeah. it was only Urdu or Persian. Yeah. How? I mean, that was. I think it was a little bit lacking on us that we didn't translated that <coughs> into local languages. Yeah. Despite that. There was this much Islam was spread. What was? How do you analyze it? How do you? Yeah. No. Thank you so much. That's such a beautiful question. Thank you so much. Um, my my understanding again, and you're so right. So Farsi was the language of administration. Um, Akbar, who was uh, dyslexic, he could not read. Like, they didn't have the term dyslexia back then. So, but he couldn't read. But even then, he would make sure that he would hear the Shahnameh and stuff like that, all translated into Persian. The Quran, by the way, was translated into Farsi in the, by the 11th century. You know that Sayyidina Salman and Farsi anhu, trans, just sort of Fatiha into Old Persian. But we have manuscripts, by the way, made tafasir were done into Farsi, so we know at least into Farsi. But also, even before Babur came, there were already Madaris being started during the Turkic, the Delhi Sultanate, where Persian was already being sort of uh, 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 promoted as the dominant language. And because it was the language, language of administration, that means that the elite Hindus would come and, by the way, these madrasas, many, many Brahmins were studying at. Uh, uh, Rajiv Kinra, who is a professor at Northwestern, has a 400-page monograph on one Hindu person, uh, Chandra Brahmin, who was a phenomenal Farsi poet and who knew Arabic expertly. And there were many of these kinds of Hindus. Many of these Rajas of Jodhpur and Jaipur were phenomenal in Farsi, right? And uh, in terms of local languages, like, as you said, Tamil, Malayalam, um, what what would essentially happen was there was there there was an intermediary process, right? Was that you let, let's say you would have a couple of administrators come from Madras or come from Bangalore, even Sanskrit, or, or or even so, so so Sanskrit is already happening, but Sanskrit is already a dead language, right? Sanskrit stopped being had stopped being spoken about two 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 thousand years ago, if I'm not mistaken, right? The the local dialect uh, had already taken over, right? And uh, what 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 had essentially arisen is that you you would have um, you know, administrator from a certain language, go and study in this madrasa, come back, take the knowledge, and he would orally teach his people in that local language. So just because they didn't leave a written book, although, for example, in, in Tamil culture, there is a famous Muslim Tamil Sufi poet from the 16th century, but that's just one figure, so I'm not going to, that, that does not disprove your argument at all. But that that is essentially the process. So, for example, during Mawlid season, during the birth of the Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, many, many, many Hindus would convert because uh, there was a tradition where they, they would send out these Muslim, Muslim musicians and they would sing 
you know, knots of the Prophet ﷺ in these Hindu villages, and they had mastered the Hindu rags. What, what are the, what, the, the the rags and the ragas? These were these were um, like in like in Arabic we say like the uh, like in Andalusia you had the 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 the, the, the what is it the, the mushahamat or the mushahamat something like that. But essentially these these were there was were Hindu meters and these Muslim musicians had mastered them, and they would sing praises of the Prophet on these meters. Hindu villagers would just enter into Islam just listening to this stuff, right? So you had people who did learn that. But there wasn't necessarily a written culture for that. It was more of an oral culture. Because again, you had to be of a certain class to learn how to read it, except if you went to a madrasa, because every single madrasa was subsidized. There was no such thing to be a madrasa and to require payment from a student was 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 contradictory. Because everything was essentially subsidized. But yeah. I hope does that does that make sense? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, probably I'm fast forwarding. Now the, the atmosphere that's going on in India, yeah, is that an effect or any? This is this is or from no no. This is no, this is an effect, but yeah yeah. Just, uh, you know, are they sort of they, they don't like because the way that Babur and you know Mughal came in because now nowadays they're calling you know they they're the Muslim is the son of. Baba. Son of Babur, right, right, right. Yeah. So, for example, they, they destroyed his Waqf Masjid, that was you know the Babri Masjid in Ayodhya in nineteen ninety two, and you know, and this is again a long. We can't do three hundred years of history in an hour and a half, but very, very briefly, there is no Hindu versus Muslim revolt under the Mughal Empire. You don't have this. Oh, where all the Hindus going to come and attack? The majority of Aurangzeb's army was Hindus. The majority of his army was Hindus, right? Which is which is a wild idea. We know this through a. Aurangzeb era chronicle written by a Brahmin, Bhimsan Dash, written in Farsi, a Hindu who never converted to Islam. Majority of his army was Hindu. One of the, one of the first things the British did when they ruled in when they came into India in 1813 is when they rule all of India. 1765 is when uh, they first take Bengal, you know, from from the Nawab al-Lucknow, um, Shuja al-Dawla and uh, Ali Vardi Khan. And one of the first things that they do is they need to legitimize themselves. And the only way that they can legitimize themselves is by delegitimizing the previous dynasties, who are all Muslim. 800 years of continuous Muslim dynasties of Delhi. And so the first thing that they need to do is create this insider versus outsider narrative. That the Hindus are the local native population, and the Muslims are the outside external population. That's why nobody's destroying the Babri Masjid until the, 19th, the 20th century. 300 years of Mughal rule, why is nobody, what, the, you know, you know, you think the Mughal state was as modern bureaucratic state that the British? Pro of course not, right? It's you have you know a local governor who's negotiating authority with the Mughal king, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, very. You have the Chaudhry, you have the Talukdar, you have the Hasildar, you have the Sanadar, you have the Zmindar, you have the Mansabdar, you have the Jagirdar, you have the Omarai, Divani, Am, Divani Am, then you have Divani Khas, etc., etc., etc. Lengthy, lengthy istilahat. Um, you know, you you think you think they you think they control what every Hindu is doing, like what? Mark Zuckerberg can do with us on our phones, of course not, you know. So it's um, it's uh, it's, uh, it's 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 really unfortunate, right? And that's why this then becomes very central for why Muslims, if we are not preserving our past, if we send all of our sons to do medicine, engineering, and more medicine, then who's going to do history? So who does history then? The Europeans and the Hindus. The Muslimanu kukiyaraha, nothing. Right? Who, who has written this past of 200 years? Not us. Right? So we need to start writing. Inshallah. And we need to learn Nahu. Right? A lot of history in Quran too. 
Right, right, exactly. Right, this the siru fil ard. What what does Alama Alusi? What does Imam Razi? What does you know Qazi Sanallah Fani Fati? Just write a tafsir of this ayah, just read. I mean it's it's brilliant, and, and that's how all of see the biggest sunnah, you know, you know, the, the, the highest ethical character is Dahab Rahman teaches us about the Holy Prophet is that there is an ethical intention be, between every single action in, in your life. And derive that from the Quran and the Sunnah and see how your world changes and see how you can change the world. This is, you know, when Iqbal says, This Jahangiri, this world taking. See how you can model it upon the Prophet. And is, is this not what we saw where, where Islam is creating beauty? I mean, the most beautiful thing in India is the Taj Mahal. And it's a, something that's based on Abu Mansur Maturidi's Aqidah and the Fiqh of Abu Hanifa. Right? And that's, you know, and, and that was another thing of Babur. Babur hated the fact that there were no gardens. In, in, in India, right? And gardens came about from this culture of, of Hanafi fiqh, of needing, you know, uh, the ashra dhira' bi ashra adru'an bi ashra adru'an, right? Of 10 by 10 um, 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 arm spans, right? And this idea that you need to create a, a, essentially a, a place for people to make wudu, ma'ul jari, etc. You can read in the fiqh books. But uh, yeah, you know, it's, you know, again, the, the only, the, Iqbal was, to my understanding, the most whole, well-rounded Muslim of the 20th century, him and probably Taha Abdul Rahman. And I think the greatest tragedy is that why, why have we not produced another Iqbal? Truly, we have to think about that. What? And that is, a, that is another conversation is that, you know, Iqbal is sort of a beneficiary of the late Mughal education system. He's educated in the small madrasa in Sialkot, you know, in the late 1890s. Um, and, and he's able to sort of read and synthesize. But nobody's I have seen who, who is able to do that in that same way, unfortunately. Because again, everyone needs to become doctors. You know, give them, let, let them read our past so that Hindus don't kill us. But, you know, may, may Allah make the, make the ahwal of the Muslimanan and him better, inshallah. Go ahead. I think from a, just a gloss over history, it looks clear that the formula for a successful Muslim empire is the collaboration between the rulers and the ulama, the scholars. Yes, yes. But and the Sufis. And the Sufis. Yeah, you need to you need to have all three, as in Darvishi and Badshahi together. Magu, and as he said, Magu dur as Badshahi. Don't say that they're separate. They're yeah. the same thing. So, what prevents now from you know leaders in, in Muslim in the Muslim world to kind of recreate that yeah i mean I, like this, this this sounds super passe and like very typical like you know uh um uh, you know uh muslim aesthetic but uh you if if we can redefine education where by 11 years old Babur can read arabic and farsi fluently how how, how is that such today if i if i take a 10 year old kid he, i can find 10 11 year old hafad i can bring Show me a 10-year-old who can, who can do tarkib of an ayah. This is Muqtada, this is Khabar, this is, you know, Na'at, Man'ud, Alayh, etc., etc. 10, 11 years old. And by the way, he was not an exception. This was the norm. So imagine if you can create a Muslim elementary school system where instead of kids are drawing circles and playtime eight hours a day away from their own mothers, I mean, that itself is, you know, in that world, for someone to be away from their mother for more than two hours a day before puberty would be, you know, un unthinkable. I mean, think about what's, what, what that's doing to the average child mind to be away from your mother before the age of puberty for that amount of, as we have in American schools. But 
you know, he's spending two or three hours a day with his mom because your moms would teach, right? And that means you have to educate our daughters to, get, to make them fluent in reading Arabic so they can pass that down to our kids, right? And that, and, and that imagine if you, by the age of 10, if a kid can read the Quran by himself or herself, you don't need to have all these lectures of Islam and this, and how do we solve this? How do we, let, if you read the Quran, that will define your worldview, I guarantee you. There are very few people who, who can read the Quran bil ma'na and who, who will not come to a, a prophetic worldview. It's impossible, truly, except for the Orientalist, you know, because you, you know, you come in with a bad niyyah, you know. But, you know, so imagine when you can create that world again. And that's, that's important. Look, we're not, that tahzeeb of Lucknow is, is pretty much gone. You know, I, today, unfortunately, I, I don't know a single Desi American kid who can read Urdu. You know, truly, and I know you're probably like, what are you talking about? At least you're learning Arabic, but it's Urdu is an Islamic language, right? Why, why have we lost that? I, I, have never seen even one after Urdu, one after school Urdu program. Just to, okay, chalo. You know, people are gonna, we're gonna lose language speaking. At least let us keep the literature alive. Who is, who's gonna read Right? Is that is that gonna just not be understood anymore? Is that just gonna die? So you know, I don't know. Uncle is laughing. I don't know if you're if you're agreeing or disagreeing or yeah. I would say, I mean, I would say perhaps just the Ottomans, because you had um, you had Mahmoud Fatih, and then you had Bayezid Thani, and then you had Salim Awal, and then you had Bayezid. everyone wants to be Ottoman. Pakistani bacha joke not one percent Turkey wants to be Urdu. Yeah, Hamari Hamari like in Hamari Tahzib ki Padadani Nahi Rahi. I don't know why. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so on the building on that on that very, very interesting discussion is that like for example, cultural domination. Yeah. Uh, especially the Western world. Uh, let's say Muslim, they see. Uh, American kid, um, to get them to understand this, to have, to have this, yeah, not cultural pride, but pride of like Muslim, yeah, historical yeah. figures from Central Asia, South Asia, and right, yeah, uh, in a concise way, how how would one pass that type of, yeah, uh, knowledge? Because classically, I see this very you just, yeah, one one easy easy thing, just teach them Urdu and then recite to them Shikwa of Iqbal. What that will do is I cannot explain everything. Everything that I pursue now is I was in Darulul Mazadville and I come. Both of my parents, my my mother, my, my mother was raised here. She doesn't even speak Urdu. My so my we only heard, in our, our household we only knew English. My parents only spoke English to each other, and we were an English only family. Only went to Azad we had to learn Urdu. 
And what that did to me of just reading that poem, I was, I, was, I was actually angry that this was something that was not presented to us in our masajid. And if you can just, just even just the literature, right, just to present that, and I, and I get your question, or even you need to show obviously the beauty, you know, um, because what, what made Urtuwa so popular, right? It was sort of that you could succeed as a Muslim while staying true to your beliefs, and that was pre presentationally done exceptionally. And that's, that's truly all you need to do. Right. But again, you know, that same history. I mean, Urtul, just think about it. Urtul conquers eight villages. <laughs> Babur <laughs> takes Afghanistan, Pakistan, what is modern day Afghanistan, Pakistan, all of northern India and Bangladesh. Think about that as a Hanafi uh, poet, uh, architect. Uh, writer, very emotional, deeply emotional. He talks about emotions vis-a-vis -vis the Quran and the Sunnah, how to sort of articulate that. The, the, you know, the, the people who do Islam and psychology have not even begun to approach uh, what, what, what he can offer the world in terms of Muslim psychology. Just, just through his memoir. Again, just small, small incidents, right? And, and you know, as, as a Mulana, I'm not going to say that we need to build a TV show or, or direct a TV show. I'm definitely, you're not going to hear that from me. But Muslims do need to present presentationally uh, uh, offer what the Mughals can do, uh, you know, have, have achieved for the world, right? Or even just one life of a Mughal king. Think about Aurangzeb Alamgir. He is the wealthiest man in the world of his time. 25% of the world's GDP is under a Hanafi king. Just think about what you can do with that narratively or, or thematically, right? And what you can present to that. I mean, just his literature, about 250 of his letters, right? And how to build a narrative on that life. So that means that yeah, we have to we have to cultivate writers, we have to cultivate authors, we have to cultivate poets, we have to cultivate architects. Well, something like Taj Mahal, which is uh, a paradise from the from the from the from the paradises of Firdos. Where where is the replica? Where is the replica of, the, of that in the world? And that was built by his great grandson Shah Jahan, who called himself Temur Sani, by the way. So so think about that, right? So it's like. First, you have to understand the beauty and then we present it, right? But it's not going to be, you know, I don't know. And this is no slight to, you know, the, those who do coding boot camps and stuff. But like, you know, it, it has to be done to people who, who, who are pursuing architecture, right? Who are pursuing poetry, who are pursuing literature, who are pursuing history so that they can instill that beauty, you know, um, you know, in, in the world. Because the other side, they, they are pouring millions of dollars into this, by the way. And that's and, and and that's how hundreds of millions of Indians have become radicalized, right? And which is who 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 has taken up this narrative of three hundred years of of uh, you know tahakkum al Islami, al Islami, right? Who who has taken that up? I don't I don't really know of anything. What there's what Azam. <laughs> but uh, who and and truly very very truthfully, when I was studying Mughal history and I. Did my Darsan Izami, you know, six years and Hibs al Quran, and then I went back to college. And you know, my dad, mashallah, who was a very uh, dedicated tabligh, and you know, he asked me, you know, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to do Mughal history. And my, you know, his my, my khala was like, just just watch Mughliyazm. It's like, what can I? <laughs> and and this is unfortunately, you know, the, the understanding of, of of many Muslims, right? Because this is the extent of of, of how they approached this three hundred year empire. 
that now has left 600 million Muslims from Pakistan to Bangladesh. 600 million is no choti tada nahi. 600 million, I mean, you can, how do you even process that number? How, how many Muslims are there in the world? 1.3 billion? That means 45% of Muslims. <laughs> Think about that, 45% of the, of the followers of the Prophet so you need to. We need to ask ourselves what what led to this. Sorry, I'm I'm like so over time. I, I'm sorry. I could I could talk about this as as you know probably this and the the fiqh of Abu Hanifa, you know. But Jazakallah khair, us the you know. Barakallah. Jazakallah khair, Abu Sarasab. Inshallah, we'll we'll speak to him a little after uh, the salah to see how much more time he has left in Chicago, uh, and you know how much more we can soak from. Uh, you know, it's awesome energy, inshallah. <laughs> Jazakumullah khairan for everyone attending as well, inshallah. Uh, Isha Salah, I believe, is at 1020, yeah. inshallah. So it's in a few short minutes, inshallah. So if anyone needs to get ready or anything like that, uh, please go ahead, inshallah. Subhanallah, we